0: For office investors, 2021 must have seemed like the most unlikely possible time to start a new company. Many observers were asking whether the conventional office was even still relevant. But where others saw decline, Brandon Huffman saw opportunity. Together with his partners, Jeffrey Fronick and Jonathan Jacobs, he picked 2021 to launch Tourmaline, a boutique firm focusing on office investment. In just the past two years, they've assembled a 4.5 million square foot portfolio and closed transactions valued at more than $3 billion. Although the company has so far tended to gravitate toward the Sunbelt, Huffman points out that the quality of individual assets, rather than a specific market, is the primary driver. Hello, and welcome back to Investment Matters. I'm Paul Rasta, Executive Editor at CPE. In this episode, Huffman shares insights into the office sector's dislocation and why he thinks some of those trends bode well for the future. He details Tourmaline's strategy for creating spaces that appeal to the changing expectations of office workers and tells us how the company is navigating this challenging capital markets climate. Take a listen. Brandon Huffman, welcome to CPE Investment Matters. It's so nice to have you here as our guest today.
1: Nice to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So first things first, uh, I've been really excited about finding out the the origin of the company name. And I, I looked it up, and apparently tourmaline refers to a group of minerals or rocks. How, how did you come up with it, and how does it resonate for you?
1: Well, I would say one of the more um, difficult and unexpected elements of starting a new company is actually coming up with a name. Uh, I think for one, you know, we're inundated with doing the actual work of launching a new business and didn't have a ton of time to think about new names. But we would periodically take breaks, brainstorm. You know, there's some like typical real estate conventions that you commonly see out there for naming companies. It's often like the founder's name or the co-founder's initials or the location where the business was conceived or where it was born, you know, based off a street or a city we wanted to break the convention a little bit which actually proved difficult because i think that the more we worked on it the more we realized we were coming up with ideas that either were already taken didn't really have any meaning you know too much of a mouthful um so finally you know in one of these brainstorming sessions my co-founder partner jeff started actually ripping through a lot of the beaches in san diego which is where he happens to be from And one of the more famous surf locales is actually called beach called beach so we thought it was interesting. We sat on it for a little while. Um, as you noted, it actually also happens to be a precious gemstone, which is a gemstone of one of the birth months. I can't remember which one, but um, it also, you know, symbolically like represents wisdom, voice, insight, like creativity, kind of this like concept of balance, which you know, in a hokey way, I think applies to our business because I think real estate investing is a lot of like an art and a science. A lot of the science is like the technical know how, the expertise, how to do things, the blocking, attacking, the basics. But there's a whole like art to it too that I think was equally as important and is often um, overlooked, right? But it's where's the puck going? Like what are the shifting tenant sensibilities? Like how's tech influencing design and how employers and employees want to interact with one another? You know, there's a million different like design and, and, and hospitality elements that have evolved really in the last couple of years that are much more art-like than science-like. And I think uh, that side of the business is just important as the technical side. So we like the concept of balance, and it isn't too hard for too many people to say. So uh, we settled. Uh, we settled with that. We figured there weren't too many better options at that point in time.
0: Well, talking about starting a new business, so it seems like that you and your partners sure picked an interesting time to launch a new firm specializing in the office sector. The conventional wisdom that we always hear is that office is going through a major adjustment, major realignment. It's going to go on for years. There's going to be lots of dislocation, and we hear the stories about longtime investors handing back the keys. So, all that said, um, what are the main trends that you think investors should be watching in the office market right now? What's shaping the sector? And you know, if there is such a thing as conventional wisdom in this area. What what's it getting right and what is it getting wrong
1: well all of that is true and a major dislocation has been a great for the last couple of years in the office category uh, first COVID induced I think since then um, you know it, it's been accentuated uh, by obviously the interest rate movement here over the last 15 months or so that said, I think we also noticed that there's going to be tremendous opportunity within that major dislocation for a couple of reasons. Like number one, we've been in the office game a long time and we had a front row seat to a lot of trends that were nascent trends that were already emerging pre-COVID. And our thesis in launching was that there was a good chance that COVID was going to really serve as a catalyst to accelerate many of those trends a decade or so into the future, right? From the way employers and employees want to work in a more optimal way, and you how tech is involved, and how design is involved. And so it was no longer going to be just sort of these really good amenities anymore. We thought it was going to be a much more kind of cohesive, interesting offering. That's what was going to attract tenants. And COVID, we thought, was going to you know bring us 10 years into the future. So for us, if we could invest, and our thesis was correct, and we could create and buy and really create that right type of product at that moment in time and give employers and real incentive to get to their employees, to get back to the office place. We thought that was a really interesting value proposition. right? It's a value proposition to the employees, which in turn is a value proposition to the employers, which is in turn is a great value proposition to our investors that are not benefiting from you know faster leasing, higher rents, better tenant retention and satisfaction with their properties. And if we could do all of that within the backdrop of like a massively dislocated category, where um, capital has gotten very expensive, prices have gone on deep, you know, deep discounts, uh, we thought that was a really interesting place to invest, where actually the fundamentals would be strengthening within that segment of the market. But broad base, you're absolutely right. Um, I think you know there is there is a there are structural shifts that have happened within the category. I think, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the product that has been vacated will never be released again. And in a weird way, I think that actually means over time, as this sort of fire kind of burns a lot of the old wood, um, it, it bodes well for a greater recovery down the road because a lot of people focus on those headlines statistics today. Paul, and They say, you know, 30 percent vacancy. Oh, my like, God, it's it's an apocalypse. And that's true. But I don't think a lot of that 30 percent will ever release again. Um, so it's almost irrelevant when it comes to the statistics. Some of it is so functionally obsolete or undesirable, whether the physical product of the market, non-transit oriented, that even if you were to give it away for free, the next buyer could not invest enough capital into it to make an adequate return on cost going forward. And it's going to get mothballed or it's going to get inverted. And I think that, of course, will play out over time and that will drag on the entire system. That will be particularly difficult for certain lenders and owners that are planning that product type. But when you think about the overall health of the market, with that bottom 30% really going away, I think the market ultimately shakes at a much like, healthier point than a lot of people would clean that are just kind of watching this from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think you know, the flight to quality that I alluded to earlier is very much wrong. And I think even in softer markets that are really suffering dramatically, if you look at the top decile buildings that are well-located and well-capitalized ownership that can invest in the buildings today, the fundamentals are actually much, much stronger than anybody would realize. I and mean, a lot of these markets, those fundamentals for those top-design buildings are stronger than they've ever, ever been. And I think that's a story that's often overlooked in terms of what's actually happening now. And so for us, it's continuing to play to that, that strength, to play to those strong trends, buying and creating that product. Uh, but clearly liquidity is going to be at a premium for the foreseeable future as we work through massive value degradation across the
0: board for 90% or so of the product out there. So Brandon, I'd like to know more about your personal origin story in the business. You earned your Bachelor of Science degree in Commerce from the University of Virginia, as well as a BA in Spanish. Uh, Are there any takeaways from your college experience that stand out, especially academically? Anything from UVA that had... Has shaped your perspective.
1: Yeah, look, I think at UBI, it's got a very well rounded experience. And and back to my origin story within real estate. I mean, I I wish I could I wish I were divinely inspired and, and had some kind of master plan from the time I was young to, to, to be in this position now. I mean, the fact of the matter is I didn't, but I but I do think that origin story really started when I was at UVA. I actually um, did a summer internship on Wall Street in banking, accepted a full-time offer to go back to within banking. But my senior year before going full-time, I actually happened to take a real estate course within the Commerce School at the University of Virginia and. You know, what struck me as uh, it should have struck me before, but I think what became very evident to me and is maybe self evident to others is that real estate really is an inefficient asset class. Uh, when you start going through case studies and learning different markets and different situations, I mean, it's the most heterogeneous asset class out there. I mean, nothing is the same. Um, no two streets are the same. No two buildings are the same. No two tenants are the same. No two ownership structures are exactly the same. And so it's effectively like the opposite of trading a commodity, right? So while it still very much depends on macro trends and supply and demand and job growth and that's all very much important something we've got to be very attuned to it's also very like situational driven right and and it's having access to those right opportunities and the right information that others don't have access to and i think that's what's unique about real estate and what really gravitated uh, me towards the category and i think as i started getting into it then um kind of in banking, I had the opportunity to raise my hand and be a little bit more real estate focused within uh, the Wall Street shop I was at. And I think then from there, it just it, that that became more and more obvious that in a market where think information is more ubiquitous, uh, more readily available, more transferable, everybody's working out the same data set. It's not that at all in real estate. I think it's still very, very much... Uh, an insular business, it's localized information, and it's knowing kind of the right people at the right time. And I think that allows for outsized returns and I think a way that a lot of other asset classes are struggling more with today. And uh, it's an interesting place to be, particularly in moments of time that we've alluded to like this, where uh, I think there's a lot of movement in a very short period of time.
0: Before you launched Termaline, you were a managing partner and head of portfolio equity investments at Rubenstein Partners. How has that experience helped inform your approach to business?
1: Yeah, Rubenstein was a phenomenal shop, still is. Um, great training ground. I think you know the there are um, a lot of people that get into real estate private equity shops that have different uh, obviously entry points to the business. And I'd say the majority of shops out there really come from kind of the Wall Street side of the business. Um, guys that were Wall Street trained or in traditional private equity shops and then started investing in real estate. You know, Rubenson was really the opposite of that. It came from the operating side of the business. So had a 50-year history as a vertically integrated owner, operator, developer. And as a result of that, I think the DNA of the firm was very much a nuts and bolts, engineering focused type shop, like roll up your sleeves, understand how to... You know, negotiate GMP contracts from general contractors. And understand how to negotiate leases. Uh, how to work with architects. How to level bids. A lot of like the small tricks of the trade that you can only really pick up by doing it and really doing it as an operator and doing it as an operator that did it really well for decades. So I think that was just a phenomenal training ground um, for me to really learn that, see it, kind of pick it up by osmosis, and then start to do it just myself while I was there as I was leading a lot of deals and then leading some of the asset management responsibilities associated with those deals. Because at the end of the day, that's still where we can generate a lot of alpha, On the on the investment side, it's not simply just making good buys. It's it's really execution focused, and and implementing a lot of those small tricks of the trade that I never probably would have learned at a different shop or at least learned as well. So very grateful for 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 my time there and that skill set I picked up.
0: As you think about your career up to this point, are there any? Other milestones that have been especially important to you, whether it's a particular accomplishment, uh, a mentor, um, a, anything else along those lines?
1: Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, one of the one of the bigger milestones in my career was when I, I more actively got involved on the fundraising side of the business at our private mm-hmm. shop. I think it really, it, 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 it exposed me to a different side of the business. Um, it really, I think, uh, attuned my my view of how investors were going to be thinking about this, not just in the context of what we are doing, but they can invest in anything across the board globally and like why is what we're going to be doing particularly attractive to that investor and really understanding how one differentiates themselves in the industry. And I think if anything, it underscores and highlights the fact that this is a very long data business. So, you know, when it comes to those investors, reputation is everything. I think it's, it's uh real estate is not like a quick in and out trade. I think people that do that are not going to be in the business for a very long time. Time, they're not going to bring reputations. So I think getting a little bit of that perspective and that that, um, uh, that interaction with those LPs on a regular basis highlighted how important it is being a good long-data partner for them. And I think that's really driven our mentality to how we want to invest uh, and, and how we think about performance over the long term, not just over a three or six-month period of time.
0: Just to bring us up to date, two years ago, you started Tourmaline with your fellow managing principals. Jeff Fronick and Jonathan Jacobs, but how did the three of you connect initially? And what do Jeff and Jonathan bring to the table? How do you complement one another as partners?
1: So we worked together for a number of years uh, at our prior shop. And so I I think that was really instrumental in, in understanding the strengths and weaknesses each person brought to the table. I think more importantly, though, just, just um, how we complement one another, right? So I think it's really hard to get in the business with somebody with that, that super high level of trust. And I had worked with those guys for years. And I worked with a lot of quality people at Rubenstein over my 13-year tenure there. Um, but they were two of the ones that will always stick out of being at the very top in terms of you know work ethic, intellect, capabilities. And I think really just dedication and the ability to like be a team player and pitch in wherever they needed to pitch in. Even if it's not their direct responsibility, and you know, one of the things I think I appreciated before, but I certainly appreciate now, is when you're starting a new business, um, having a lot of like those intangibles is just as important as the intellect or the tangibles or the skill set. It's having guys that are just you know have to you know failure is not an option. they can do everything they can to win and to make it work, and they're always going to be there to have your back. And so that's why I was super comfortable going into business with those two um, knowing that that was going to be their mentality and also um I think their skill set is 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 very diverse and blends out a lot of the gaps I have in my skill set'm uh, I'm, I'm bigger picture uh, more strategy driven more focusing on you know leveraging my relationships to, to find the interesting inefficiencies that I referenced before or we can invest in the midst of those inefficiencies you know Jeff, Is very good at all of those things, but he also, I think, is much more sharply attuned to tenant sensibilities, like what does the work environment of Office 3.0 look like, and how's that different from Office 2.0 that we've seen in the last 10 years, and how is that different from Office 1.0, which we saw for 40 years before that. And I think not only does he have very good insight there, but he's a very good executor. And very much um, connects with a lot of those end users in a way that I think is unique in our industry. So that allows us to drive relevant product. I think more relevant product to where Office is going than maybe a lot of our competitors are able to do. And a lot of that's a credit to him. Um, you know, John is good at all of those things, and, and even you know a lot of the things that Jeff and I don't want to deal with on a regular basis. I mean, he keeps our company a well-oiled machine we've got a lot of really uh, blue chip institutional global partners. he handles a lot of you know kind of their requests a lot of their reporting needs um, He's just very sharp at running in a very efficient business which I think frees the two of us up Jeff and I to do what we do best and it's to it's find those opportunities and then execute on them. So it's uh, it's been a pleasure working with the two of them and, and uh, I can tell you that uh, we would not be nearly as far along if, if either of them were missing from the equation.
0: Well, you've been touching on strategy throughout our conversation so far, and I'd like to now drill down a little bit more, if we could. You, it seems to me that you've assembled a portfolio in a pretty eclectic group of markets, um, among them Charlotte, Minneapolis, Dallas, San Antonio, Miami, and others. Why, why those markets, though, and is there a common thread?
1: We are not enamored with any of those markets um, just innately per se. I mean, there's nothing about, most of our investing has been in the Sunbelt. It's not because we just love the Sunbelt, although there are great places to be in the Sunbelt, for sure. I think as investors, we're looking for the optimal spread between risk and reward, right? So we're looking for situations in which we think fundamentals are outpacing pricing, right? Or our expectations of where fundamentals are going are outpacing the market's expectation of pricing today. And I think that setup we have found most commonly occur in the Sunbelt. These are markets that are beneficiaries of a lot of the beta tailwinds that a lot of people know about uh, in migration, job growth, population moving there, Um, a lot of them business friendly jurisdictions. And so that has actually catalyzed a lot of leasing. Particularly leasing amongst the very top subset of product that I referenced earlier, um, yet yeah, it has to be in a category. It also happens to be in a category that's largely disrupted today, right? So a lot of people have started to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So for us, if we could buy one of those best-in-class buildings and then further accentuate it and increase the desirability of it to the tenants which allows us to outperform you know, our base case pro formas, you know, that's the situation we're looking for to outperform. And so I think we felt most comfortable in our ability to do that in the Sunbelt, given how those assets were pricing and given the trends that we saw moving there. That doesn't mean that will always be the case. Uh, the markets are moving very quickly right now. We've done deals in markets, as you referenced, like Minneapolis, we've done stuff in New York. We're continuing to increasingly look at a lot of the historical gateway markets because now um, they've gotten a lot softer on the fundamental side map you know, my for the overall submarket level again some sub products done a lot better as I, as I alluded to but a lot of them are, are suffering tremendously. There's not a lot of liquidity in the markets. So at some point they just might go on sale where it's enough of a sale where, you know, again, we think the, the fundamental is going to end up pricing. We haven't seen that in mass yet in a lot of those gateway markets. And even in the sumbo markets in which we play today, it's been very like selective rifle shot opportunities. Um, we're not beta investing kind of large scale betting on some rebound in those markets. It's, wanting a rising tide but when we can make the right investment and with a backdrop of a rising tide um so that's why we've been there but i'd say the common thread regardless of whether it's been a credit deal or an equity deal regardless of the market whether it's been sunbelt or gateway markets northeast northwest is that we really are focusing on very quality underlying collateral Um, i think that the commodity segment of the market that makes up, you know, 80% or more of the stock today. We really don't want to control buildings that, can work, that we can't differentiate materially from the competitive set. I think that um, that puts you in a position where you're really riding the beta waves, and it can be a race to the bottom, and bottom just being pricing in very soft markets, where the only way you can compete effectively or gain velocity on the tenant side is to just by undercut your competition. That's not what we want. I think our base strategy at the end of the day uh, is to really create bargaining leverage over tenants. And the way we create bargaining leverage over tenants is by creating really unique product that doesn't exist in mass. And it's the desirable product that tenants want today. They will pay premiums for that. They're showing they're very price insensitive at the top of the market. And if we can do that, and we've also had a very low entry point to the deal where we can do it in a way that still is creating value for them, Um, that's where we can, you know, really outperform. So quality is the name of the game, and I think will always continue to be for us, at least for the foreseeable future.
0: Well, bringing that down to the property level again, you've discussed what you look for in an asset. Do your... uh, To what extent do your properties also um, call for some kind of additional investment? Are there... um, Would you say that there are value-add opportunities out there that you look for, or are you looking for a a property that is basically high-quality, off-the-shelf, does not require a great deal of capital from your part?
1: We have the ability to roll up our sleeves and execute very complicated renovations to to handle a lot of what I'll call execution risk at the asset level uh, effectively. That said, by no, we're not we're not martyrs. We're not looking to do that if we don't think we're being compensated accordingly. Um, today, I think we exist in a market that is so illiquid that we are only focusing on situations that are, it's almost layups only, where we can focus on generating closer to opportunistic or of returns, but hopefully at more like core or core plus risk profiles, just by virtue of being having the capital to actually you know, be there when there's very limited competition on the buy side. Um, that said when we think about the trends and what we focus on and like the most desirable office product that we're looking to create today you know i think we we need to glean a lot of lessons from covid and one of the i think key lessons is not that the typical employee loves working from home from their kitchen table five days a week i think the real lesson um that that we have um Really internalized in a lot of ways, and we're looking to then roll out our properties. Is that most employees like a diversity in work posture throughout the week? I think a typical employee loves working from home one day a week. Uh, maybe they're on the road one day a week. Maybe they're in the office two days a week, and maybe they're in the kind of proverbial third place, like coffee shop one day a week, right? And that diversity in work posture is very important. And what we are looking to do is buy and create properties that actually bring that variety in work posture within the, the campus. So a lot of that is no longer just having like really good amenities the amenities stay within the four walls amenities. It's activating the connective tissue between the amenities. So the employee can go down to the really high end, you know, dining hall or, or coffee shop and they can have that diversity and experience and they can have kind of those fortuitous or gratuitous, I should say, um, rendezvous with other people and other companies and that collaboration and feeling that they're outside of the office. Yet they can be an elevator right away from getting back to, uh, to their boss or their employees for like key meetings, right? And it's, it's doing that really well it's easier said than done. I think most office product is not conducive to it generally, but then it goes way beyond the physical product, it goes into the services offered. The hospitality around the services and then really like the tech and how kind of the tech brings it all together and makes it very user friendly so we're focusing on product where we can kind of roll that out in a much more hospitality forward way but obviously matching up a really i think compelling um built environment around it that's unique in the market and hasn't been done in scale in the last five years if really ever
0: Brandon, you've heard, you've referenced liquidity a couple of times during our conversation or the lack thereof as the case may be. and uh, I really have to ask you what kind of conditions are you encountering out there as a con- as an investor to the extent that you do need to tap in to the to the debt markets or for that matter the, the equity markets and um, are there any strategies that, that you were finding that are successful right now in, in this very tough climate? Yeah.
1: You know, for us, we're really net buyers right now. We're not selling anything. So, you know, to us, it's all just math. Um, We can pay one price if we're getting debt of a certain amount. If the debt is much more diluted, then we can pay a lower price. And we're just going to do the math accordingly and make those adjustments. I will tell you that a lot of sellers are starting to offer up seller financing these days, right? Because they're much more sensitive to it. And whether that's just to protect kind of the marks, their sales proceeds, um, they already have the risk of the asset. So a lot of them don't have any concern taking paperback at 60% of that previous risk level, even if it's at below market rates to facilitate transaction at higher pricing today. So I think seller financing will continue to be a bigger part of it. I think, you know, the lenders own on a mark to market basis. If everybody had to mark their assets today, the lenders probably own somewhere between 85 to 90% of the office buildings in this country at this moment in time. And I think as a lot of those lenders look to step in and protect collateral, bring in new capital, foreclose on previous borrowers, restructure loans. They're going to um, uh, you know, to, to, to facilitate that type of transaction. I think they'll get very aggressive on the financing side. So we're in the middle of a few of those situations right now in which they will provide very aggressive go forward financing. And that's obviously to protect their positions and kind of fight their way out of a lot of these trouble situations. As a general matter, if it's not seller financing, um, it's very, very tough. I think there are very few banks lending in the sector. There's virtually no international banks, maybe two German banks, and it's only for New York city and court type deals. There's a few life codes that are lending very few, and it's at 50 to 55% LTV. And it's at, it's seven and a half percent fixed or wider. There's obviously prepayment flexibility there. And there's other constraints as a borrower that, that aren't ideal. Um, and CMBS is really tough. It's been super choppy, particularly for office loans. A lot have been getting kicked out of pools. A lot of buyers, you buyers know, changing the terms kind of immediately prior to closing. So when you factor all of that in, you know, then you've got the debt loans, right? So they're kind of the last one standing. And they're, some are still actively lending. A lot are dealing with their own issues and they're, they're too illiquid to really be lending in scale today. But for even a lot of deals we focus on, which are, you know, very large deals that often require kind of $200 million larger loans, you know, the debt funds are the only guys playing and it's really only five or six of them um, because a lot don't have the appetite. Uh, And so when you think they also think about supply and demand and they think about where they have leverage. So, you know, a lot of these loans, even if they're really bulletproof from the credit perspective and very little chance they could ever lose money, on the new valuations, they're lending at they're only at fifty-five or sixty percent of that. You know, some of these loans are pricing at so for five hundred or wider. So this is it's eleven percent debt that used to be uh, seven or six six percent debt. You know, two years ago five percent debt. So the world has moved very very quickly, gotten very expensive, and and you know it's not just interest rate movement; it's, it's illiquidity on top of the interest rate movement um, is really the double whammy that's that's crushing the, the valuations at this moment in time.
0: You've ramped up this business very, very quickly in just a couple of years, but where do you see Tourmaline evolving, let's say, over the next three to five years? In in general, what is on the horizon for your shop at this point? You
1: know i think we want to we will continue to be very selective and who we work with and what assets we invest in because as i mentioned i think this is a long dated business and so we want to take the longer term approach to it and we want to work with groups particularly investors that we can grow with over you know years and decades as opposed to maybe doing one or two quick deals um i try not to put too many predictions on it is the reality paul because Things have even moved so much since we launched a little over two years ago that I never could have predicted this, these market conditions, this market environment, the opportunities set that's emerging. So I think what we want to do is we want to focus on kind of what, what's important to us, the type of assets where we can really add alpha. And we don't want to just, you know, be kind of blindly beta investing out there. We want to actually give a true alpha proposition to our investors. But I think to the extent we can do that, we're going to we're going to roll with the punches and we're going to see you know, how the market dynamics evolve over time and wherever we can be most effective in finding those inefficiencies and driving that alpha is where we're going to be. So it will be office because uh, this is what we do. Uh, And, you know, I don't think we're we're interested in getting heavily into retail or multifamily or any other asset class right now, but it'll be office. But I think the office will move between markets. It might move between equity and credit. Uh, It might move between kind of even the role we have in certain deals. But I uh, quality still, though, I think will carry the day for me if I had to guess on anything. So maybe it's not going to change too much, even if it changes a lot.
0: Well, Brandon, now let's turn to one of my favorite parts of the Investment Matter series, Well, a segment that I like to call CEOs Off the Clock. None of us can stay on the job 24-7, although it sure seems like we try sometimes. But when you do find time to step away from the daily grind, is there anything in particular that, that you like to do as a uh, little change of pace?
1: Well, I have three young children, so um uh, my attention is often grabbed by them when I'm not working. So love, you know, being involved in their sports, traveling with them. Um luckily I, I have a very great supportive wife who does 95% of that, but the 5% on free, I'm doing a lot of it, you know, and then I, I love, I love sometimes when I'm by myself with a couple others, I love getting out, uh, fishing, fly fishing a couple times a year. I love getting out west to go skiing, you know, sort of taking a break in nature and feeling like I can unplug for a day or two and, and sort of, uh, you know, slow my mind down a little bit from a lot of the, the work we've got going on on a daily basis. But, uh I think it's as simple as that. And I hope to hopefully be in position to do it a little bit more often, but, um, we will see. Time shall tell.
0: Well, Brandon Huffman, I uh, really appreciate your taking the time today to visit us on Investment Matters. Uh, thanks for being our guest. And uh, it's been great talking with you.
1: Yeah, this was fun. Thank you, Paul. Great to be with you today.
0: That was my conversation with Brandon Huffman, CEO of Termaline Capital Partners. Please join me in December for a timely episode with Shlomo Chop, the founder of Terra Strategies. He'll be sharing his insights into distressed assets, the real estate capital markets, CMBS, and other topics. You can find archived episodes of Investment Matters and more CPE podcasts on Apple Podcasts and on our website, commercialsearch.com. Before you go, let me take a moment to tell you about an exciting opportunity. The CPE Executive Council is a group of industry leaders who exchange ideas about trending real estate issues. Highlights of their discussions are posted on our website and featured in our newsletters. If you're interested in joining the Council, please contact CPE's Editor-in-Chief, Jessica Fear, at jessica.fier, that's F-I-U-R, at cpe-mhn.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Investment Matters, and be well.